Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Did you say that? Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that combs through the Left Behind book series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. How, how are we doing? I'm doing all right. It's, uh, okay, so this this part of the book, it, it kind of dragged a little bit for me. Yeah. And I know you thought less so, but it doesn't dip into tribulation force territory. We're not returning to that, but at the oh, same never look time, back. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it, there is, I don't want to say it's it's a lot of filler, but there are some parts that do drag just a, a tad too much for my tastes. Yeah, it's a little touch and go where you feel like, uh-oh, we might be heading back into that Tribulation Force territory with a lot of stage setting. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best word for it, stage setting. Now, we get a little bit of action and a little bit of suspense, yeah. especially toward the latter portion, and we'll, of course, get to talking about that. But you're right. Objectively, it is slower. I enjoyed it for what it is. Yeah. And I know that you had a little bit more of a problem with it. Uh, I will say, though, that it it does have my favorite plot point in the entire series so far in this section. Oh man, I want to hear that when we get to it. Okay. So to catch everybody up on where exactly we are, if you didn't read the episode title, which I hope you did, we are in Soul Harvest, The World Takes Sides, part two. Now, when last we left off, we got confirmation that Chloe is very likely alive. Buck now has good reason to think she's alive. And we learned something from Zion Benjuda, who was combing through Bruce Barnes's old email. There may have been a mole inside the tribulation force and that Amanda White Steele may have been an infiltrator from the global community. Nothing is confirmed, but we have strong suspicions now. And given that Ray is currently still searching for her, does not believe she's dead, despite what he's being told, that's going to have broader implications. Mm -hmm. So I did want to touch on a couple of things that I don't think we talked about last time. Okay. One of the things that Buck does is he meets with a GC officer named Ernie at one of the shelters, and he gives him a picture of Chloe and essentially puts out an APB for Chloe's location. That is going to have implications later on in this section. Ernie reaches back out to Buck and says, hey, the GC is looking for you. You really need to call and check in. So we're starting to figure out that the GC chain of command is starting to work in a way more military style, even though Buck, who is ostensibly a civilian who runs Global Community Weekly, is still being required to check in with superiors in a way you would in, say, the military Mm -hmm. and take orders from that. So we're moving, or rather we have moved, into very much a military dictatorship type of scenario worldwide. Which is, of course, what Tim LaHaye thinks is coming. You know, basically the whole world run by a military dictatorship, spearheaded by the U.N. Right. 
I touched on Brave New World in a previous episode, and that's kind of like, I'll, I'll harp on that again, it's like kind of the idea of like a, a one state that is uh, that has control of almost every single industry, funnels power through the one state, is kind of uh, what he's kind of getting at, if you want a, a better literature example. Yeah. Ernie will actually come up right when we go into chapter nine. Another thing that Ernie mentions while they are discussing some of the ins and outs of what's happening with the rebuilding effort, the abbreviation for the cellular solar communications network that they are installing worldwide. Did you catch that? Uh, I did not. So if you abbreviate cellular solar, it becomes cell soul. Uh, yep. I wrote off to the side, come on, we're going to make this huge worldwide 5G network and we're going to call it Cell Soul, like sell your soul. Come on, man. I mean, I, when you sign up for any cellular company, it's kind of like selling your soul. So I kind of get that. <laughs> yeah, a little. Somebody wants out of their two-year contract, huh? Yeah, I've been, I've been looking for a new, uh, <laughs> new cell phone <laughs> provider. Well, don't name any because we won't get sponsored. Right. A couple more catch-up notes. Buck loops Ken Ritz back in to keep him on retainer as a pilot. We find out that Ken was injured during the earthquake, but he's on the mend in a hospital. Buck does get a second recorded message from Ray. And Ray says, I feel in my soul Amanda is still alive. This is all kind of tail end of chapter eight stuff. So Ray is still going off that gut feeling that Amanda did not perish in the earthquake. They do talk about something. I don't know if we said this, but Donnie and his wife actually lost their baby in the rapture. So if we remember way back in book one, that really uncomfortable scene of the new father and mother about to give birth, you know, in the hospital and the woman's stomach deflates yeah yeah i think a similar kind of scenario happened to them i don't think she was in delivery when it happened but something similar like uh they're holding their baby and just all of a sudden blanket goes yeah something like that or she was pregnant and then the pregnancy just ended they're never really clear on it at least that i remember but you would probably be told by a christian reading this as well donnie and his wife are dead now so they're all together with their baby in heaven right small comfort guys (sighs) And then Buck is going through his computer with Zion and he uses voice commands, which I'm not saying voice commands didn't exist there, but it's a little more responsive and reactive. And also, like, I think for those of us who have ever used voice commands on their computer, like Siri or like Cortana or anything like that, it's quicker to just click on your document than to be like open document. Right. And uh, we'll actually see the voice command come back this section as well. Oh, cool. That was something I highlighted in my notes. Like, do they have voice commands? So I caught that as well. And I recorded one line from the end of chapter eight when Zion says that he feels in his heart that this Amanda situation isn't true. And he says, but yet here we are despairing. Yeah. Kind of a poignant line. And I I like Zion. Like I've always liked him since we met him. And I think he ends up being a voice of pragmatism during a lot of things because he's a little bit of an older character. He's been through a lot and he's sort of stepping back and saying like, yeah, I feel that this isn't happening or I feel that we aren't having to go through this, but yet we are still despairing over it. So let's just move on. 
I do like Zion for the same reasons as well. As he develops, he's a really cool character. He has a few really cool moments in this section, one that I just find absolutely hilarious that I can't wait to get to. Yeah. Let me ask you something. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like they created him to replace Bruce because they knew Bruce was getting written out already? Or do you think that they decided after they created him that he was going to be more important, so they wrote Bruce out? I feel like they knew always that there was going to be a pastoral transfer in the Tribulation Force and having like the death of a mentor plotline with Bruce would be one, really powerful for the reader and two, be good set up for Zion as the successor. So I think that was planned since the beginning. Yeah, it's some real hero's journey stuff. You know, Obi-Wan dies on the Death Star and then in the next movie you get Yoda. Yeah. Yeah, that works for me. So let's go ahead and launch into chapter nine. What do you got? Ernie is calling in and just being like, hey, we're widening the search for your wife. He reiterates what we said in the intro. It's like, hey, I'm the last one who saw you. I'm gonna have to answer it if you don't check in. So just, hey, go ahead and check in. They have a lead now on where Chloe could be because a young woman who fits the description of Chloe was being lifted into one of those Ambu vans late yesterday. So we have some idea of the whereabouts of where Chloe could be. And she's in a town called Kenosha. If you've been following the news the last year, Kenosha has been in the headlines. Yes, it was. It is that Kenosha, uh, Kenosha, yes. Wisconsin. Kenosha is actually just north of Chicago, like up I-94. And you cross the state line into Wisconsin and Kenosha is basically right there. Yeah. So we find out, yep, she's in a makeshift hospital in Kenosha. Buck and Zion now have a game plan. Rereading the email that they get about Amanda, I did write down, suspect the root beer lady. Oh God, yeah. Battles are lost in the field, but wars are lost from within. So some unknown benefactor sent Bruce an email telling them to suspect Amanda. Yeah. And the root beer lady, of course, being a reference to her initials, A-W, you know, like A-N-W root beer, which is very silly. Yeah. <laughs> But what else do we find out about Amanda's family and her name? Before she married her first husband, her maiden name was Fortunato. Uh-oh. Adding another layer to this whole intrigue plot of her possibly being a, uh, a double crosser. I really like that in a way, because like, okay, so when Amanda was first introduced, it was very rushed and not on mic, but we've talked about how we feel the Amanda being a turncoat plot line was kind of written in later. And that kind of makes sense because of how rushed and seemingly thrown out of nowhere her introduction to the story was if that's something that, that they're just throwing in there to make her character more spicy you know what I'll take it because I would rather her be a turncoat than just be a wife that has no agency. That just be nothing. Yeah. Like just be this flat two-dimensional nothing. And I think they might almost be recognizing their own faults because if you look at Amanda, she is a little too perfect. Yeah. When she meets Ray. All of this information now coming out, you're like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. Speaking of Ray, Mac wakes up Ray. We cut back to New Babylon. Right before you go into that, the voice command line that I was referencing is there where Buck turns to the computer and goes, close files, re-encrypt, open search engine, find Chicago Tribune. And then it, it, uh, it pulls it all up. Oh my God, I missed that. That's so bad. In the amount of time it took you to say all those, I couldn't probably get Siri to set a timer. Right. Because she'll just sit there and spin and spin and be like, I'm thinking about it. Hang on a second. Sorry, can't do that. Try again. Yeah, I know. 
So we cut back to New Babylon. Mac wakes Rayford up overjoyed because he has prayed and become a believer. So we got a new member of the team in Mac McCollum, and he's adorable. I like that too, where he's just like, I did it, Cap. I did it. Did what? I prayed. I did it. Honestly, this, if you have been around like new, really enthusiastic believers, this is kind of how some of them can act. Yeah, they can. And it's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the only word I have for it. I'm like, oh, all right, man. Welcome to the team, bud. Now, when I first was introduced to this plot point that we're about to hit, I was a little bit skeptical and a little bit like, oh, they're doing this. But honestly, I think it's a decent bit of storytelling and is uh, one of the better, more fantastical story building moments where Rayford feels like he sees a smudge on Mac's forehead and he tries to wipe it off, but can't. And then he's like, hey, this looks like what Catholics used to get on Ash Wednesday. And now we start start to see that any believer will have a mark upon their forehead that looks like a holographic cross that believers can use to identify one another. And the, the mechanics of how it works is you can't see your own and non-believers can't see your mark, but you can see other believers' marks. So it's a way that you can discreetly be able to identify each other, which you know what, as an antithesis to the mark of the beast, uh, I'll call this the mark of the lamb. I they think they see... actually start calling it that. Really? Okay. Well, I, I I'm not, don't quote me on that. I might be wrong, but. Okay. Well, that that's just kind of what, uh, since the, I heard this plot point, that's kind of what I've named it. I think that's pretty, pretty decent, a plot point. As far as a plot point goes, it's good. They are spinning a lot of yarn out of a very thin verse in Revelation to get this mark. Yes, I remember that as well. I think you probably saw that in the handbook like I did, where they basically say like, there's a little something in there that talks about being sealed on the forehead, and then we just ran with it. Mm -hmm. So all of the magic stuff that happens with it, like you're going to find out, like Gavin said, you can't see your own, and non-believers can't see it, but believers can, and they can see each other, and it's, it's all this stuff, and the fact that it's a smudge that's got a holographic cross in it and they could kind of describe it like a magic eye poster mm -hmm. but of a cross and it's like weirdly 3d it reminds me of like those 3d hologram stickers you tried to get in school like when you mm -hmm. turn in your worksheet you're like can i get one of the hologram ones <laughs> Which is neat, but all right. <laughs> None of that stuff is in the Bible. I think there yeah. is one verse about being sealed on the forehead and that's it. It's funny that the most interesting stuff in the this series, like the whole Eli and Moisha thing and now the holographic Yu-Gi-Oh cross on their forehead. <laughs> Um, yeah, because uh, it's like the, the Eye of Osiris at the bottom of every Yu-Gi-Oh card. That's what I thought, uh, thought of when I heard it. The most interesting stuff in this series happens when they start taking left turns away from canon and just start having fun with it, which I wonder how much more interesting the series would be if a lot more liberties like that were taken. I mean, they take a lot already, but it seems like they, they get better story building when they do that. Yeah, it does. Like, because they get to really tell a story and not mm -hmm. so much 
much try to translate prophecy. Like we've said several times, that's where it gets a little bad is that they are telling a story when people think that they're supposed to be translating prophecy, specifically because of Tim LaHaye's reputation. Right. And people take this at face value. But at the same time, we look at it and you're like, no, that's a neat plot device. Like, I like that you did that, but it's not really biblical. Speaking of the handbook, I I mentioned this to you the other day and I just wanted to bring it up on mic. How the entire series got started in Tim LaHaye's mind. He was on a plane to a, a Bible conference and he saw a guy not wearing a wedding ring fl- flirting with a flight attendant. And he's like, my God, I think I have a story uh, I can make out of this. Yeah, I remember us talking about that kind of all the way back on episode one, uh, oh, really? or at least alluding okay. to the story, like alluding to it. But yeah, he saw what he perceived to be an act of infidelity and was like, well, what if the rapture happened right now? <laughs> Which is like super judgy if you think about it. He's like, well, if the rapture happened right now, well, that fellow there, uh, he wouldn't be going. But me, I'd be going. I'm Tim LaHaye. I still don't know if he sounds like that. I really need to look up him talking because in my head, even though he doesn't look like him, I think he's like Kenneth Copeland's brother. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I imagine too. Actually, yeah, yeah, they're I'm like on, the Wario and Waluigi. On the back of my copy, of, he does kind of look like the, the Luigi to Kenneth Copeland. Yeah, see, now you can't unsee it. Somebody meme that. <laughs> Y'all get on there and meme that. Kenneth Copeland is Wario. Tim LaHaye is Waluigi. Someone also put uh, Jerry B. Jenkins in a toad outfit. (laughs) Okay, let's, all right, do it. I need it up on the page. So back to the story. After they realize that they've got the magic eye crosses on them, Ray does say, I prayed for a sign and God answered. So Ray, who was hemming and hawing and wringing his hands about his paranoia last time, now that paranoia has been lifted and he knows who he can trust. Mm -hmm. To a point. Yeah, We'll get to that in the next book, though. Okay. Buck and Ray finally get the chance to speak with each other, although Ray is on a recorded line, so they keep it super vague. Buck updates him on the deaths, who they lost at the church. Ray kind of updates him on Amanda and a couple of other things. And I wrote this down, and this is kind of to what you were saying at the beginning. The book now is getting to a point where the weirdness is starting to simmer. So we've got the marks. We've already had the judgments. We've had the witnesses. Things are starting to simmer. We've had Leon come back from the dead, allegedly. All this stuff is starting to happen, but we're still kind of in the thriller procedural mode. Mm -hmm. And I keep saying it. I promise that Apollyon is where things really start to kick off. Y'all are so tired of hearing me say that by this point. You're like, just get to the fifth book, It's staring at me in between a copy of Nikolai and a NIV teen study Bible on my desk. It's just, it's. We're so close to the reason why we did this podcast. We were so close. But Soul Harvest itself is a lot of stage setting. I think it's done better than Tribulation Force, like I said, but it still ends up being kind of procedural. So characters updating each other on what's going on, adjusting to the new destroyed world that they're now in. It's a sea change and they're all adjusting to it. So they finally get to the hospital, but kind of big dogs his way into the hospital, like flashing his creds and doing his buck thing. And he starts checking out all of the does, all the John and Jane does. 
He meets another doctor and he bumps into him and he's like, yeah, you might want to check our morgue. And he walks him in there and he's like, hey, by the way, doctor, you got a bruise on your forehead. And the doctor's like, yeah, you have one too. You want me to check that out? And he kind of looks at it. So Buck and this doctor both have a weird mark on their foreheads and they don't know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. And then Buck takes a long look through the morgue and a pretty morbid scene. Like they start describing some of these bodies with rigor mortis setting in back to the weird obsession with violence and gore that these books have like just out of the blue they start describing some of these dead bodies and it's a little gross yeah outside of that room another doctor recognizes chloe's picture and tells buck that she would have had to undergo surgery which they didn't have the equipment at that hospital because the hospital is actually two hotels that they've turned into a makeshift hospital. They would have had to send her to another hospital for surgery. Yeah. And they said, yeah, uh, we sent Mother Doe to this other hospital. They call her Mother Doe because of all the people that were unidentified, they would just have like, I think it's like John Doe and Jane Doe, but they went through the alphabet of first names so that they just started using descriptive terms. And so this is the first time that they find out that Chloe is for sure pregnant. Yep, she is two months pregnant. And we find out where she went. She is in Minneapolis, over 300 miles away. Buck instantly is just like, well, let's go then. He goes weak in the knees when he realizes she's pregnant and is like, oh, we gotta go. Yeah, now it's not only he's trying to find his wife, he's trying to find his wife and his expecting child. Yeah, exactly. And as chapter nine closes out, we get a weird exchange between Mac and Ray Mm -hmm. where they talk about, do we need to confess our faith to the Antichrist? Because the Bible says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, uh, who do we confess to? Because I I just kind of confess to you and I did it out loud. Am I good? Because I totally don't want to tell these people that I'm a Christian now. And we're kind of operating on Rayford's existing policy of what they don't know won't hurt them, Mm -hmm. which is a little deceptive. Yeah. But, you know, it is what it is. And before we get into chapter 10, I want to talk about something vis-a-vis those marks. Okay. It kind of seems like a callback to the Jesus fish thing. What do you mean by that? Did you ever hear that story when you were in church about the origin of the fish thing? And you guys know what I'm talking about. They were on everybody's cars in like the 90s and the 2000s, like the silver. I mean, I know the verse it's referring to, like, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. So kind of like 216, this one has a lot of different origins. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the fishers of men thing, like you said. Another one of them is that it was a sign that Christians during the Roman Empire would draw almost like code or like a French resistance kind of thing where they would draw the fish places and that would be like a safe meeting. Another one would be like if you didn't know if someone was a believer with your shoe on the ground, you would draw like one half of it. And if they came by and finished it, like you drew one swoop and if they drew the other swoop and filled in the fish, then that meant that they were like, they were cool. Okay. Did you ever see that? I've never heard those before. No. So there's two more. Okay. One of them is that the symbol is called the ichthys um, in Greek. It's ichthys, so fish. The symbol is also a reference to the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. So when Jesus fed the 5,000 by multiplying five loaves of bread and two fish. And then the other symbolic meaning is that if you take the Greek characters for the word ichthys, it basically translates into an acronym for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Hmm. So iota, chi, theta, upsilon, sigma, which translate to Jesus anointed God's son, 
savior. Okay. But that's actually when you used to see the ones that had the Greek characters in them. That's what it said. It said Ichthus. Oh, okay. Then, so you saw all kinds of variants. This is a very, like, when Left Behind was big, these things were huge. Yeah. You remember those? Like, it was on everybody's car and, like, T-shirts and bracelets. Necklaces. Some people would have, like, fish hooks on their hat for that. Oh, yeah. And still to this day, like, I, I see, like, that that's a very common symbol that I see a lot of places. I just, I haven't heard, like, any of the lore behind it other than just come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. Because yeah. I was actually in a Bible camp when I was younger that that was, like, the main uh, verse that we talked about. The fishers of men thing. Yeah. And uh, you remember the Darwin fish? Yes. Oh, my God. Like, the counter symbol. Yeah, too. it was the counter symbol. They put feet on the bottom of the fish and they had Darwin written in. In it. it was a weird like bumper sticker meme war because like so the edgy r slash atheists made the darwin fish which was a fish with feet and it had the word darwin in it and then the christian companies started making ones with the darwin fish being eaten by a bigger fish that <laughs> truth in it oh my god and if i recall correctly like your pastafarians and aka the the meme flying spaghetti monster church also made their version of it as well oh man these kids don't know about the flying spaghetti monster that was some <laughs> other old r atheism oh like God. weirdness dude man early 2000s atheist circles were even weirder than some <laughs> of the christian ones it was just so god it's real cringe looking back at it now i mean i guess though when you're when you're growing up in a because, like, you know, even when I was a teenager, I fell into the edgy atheist phase. Like oh, me you, too. Me too. When you start to have your first bits of religious autonomy and break away, uh, once you start interfacing with that counterculture, you can go a bit buck wild with it. Yeah, and it gives you a sense of, like, like you said, autonomy. Yeah. It makes you feel rebellious and, like, dangerous and cool. And I think that, like, at the time, you know, you listen to a Chris Hitchens debate and you're just like, oh, man, yeah, that's so cool. It's like, no, nah, it's cool, man. Like, just calm down. And also, like, Bush was in the White House. We were, you know, there's a resurgence of nationalism and specifically Christian nationalism because there was a lot of Islamophobia. Not that there still isn't. There was a huge return to Christian identity, one nation under God. Nationalism was on the rise. And one might say that it hasn't really stopped rising. And so to rebel against that was a certain niche identity that I think a lot of people glommed onto, especially in like high school and early college. Yeah, definitely. And it, and, it, and to a degree, it's really, it gives you a connecting with stuff that you used to think taboo and see a lot of other people doing it. It can give you a new sense of community since you're kind of separating from the community that was kind of forced upon you. Yes, and especially when you're finding that community online and easily accessible for a lot of extremely online millennials that was very 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 important yes. for them back then i know it was for me yeah and definitely for me as well all right you ready to go into chapter 10 let's do it all right so rayford and mac are on the condors 216 and ray's just like hey i gotta show you something that uh that an old friend of mine installed and he shows him the bugging device on the 216 that allows him to listen in and shows mac how to use it as well so now mac has that power but mac's just like hey uh 
they question me about this. I, I don't know what it is. Exactly. So we cut back to Buck and Zion, um, rather to Buck, who is having to walk back to the Range Rover because they had to park the Rover, walk to the hospital. They are both now trying to walk, not together, but inconspicuously back to the Rover mm-hmm. um, for a few miles. And they're getting tailed by a couple of G-men. Yeah. Zion's getting harangued by these GC goons and... They're trying to get back to the rover and they're sort of doing like the slow walk and then the fast walk (laughs) and then the faster walk. And then Buck finally gets to the rover, peels out, turns around, picks up Zion and they speed off. And Zion Benjuda, he starts delving into Buck Williams level of disguises. Dude, he's so pleased with himself. He is in tears cackling. His whole disguise was he goes, I am Joe Baker in a ridiculous like caricature of an American accent and goes, I run a bakery shop and bake the rolls for you because I am Joe Baker. (laughs) And And these guys buy it. I don't know. This is this is where like my suspension of disbelief got thrown out and I'm just like, okay, Jerry's just having a bit of fun here this section. I'm going to turn this a little bit dark. Okay. You go for it. Because we talk about the right-wing propaganda aspect of these books. When you look at some of the tenets of fascism, in the fascist narrative, the enemy has to be both strong and weak. Yes. That they are so strong and so far-reaching, and they're a massive conspiracy, and they're going to take over the world, but also they are idiots and can be easily tricked and easily defeated. Ah, okay. Yeah, I can definitely see that with this plot point. Am I saying these books are overtly fascist? fascist no but i am saying that certain aspects of them do match up with that kind of narrative oh yeah definitely yeah so before you go down to the comments and be like he says these books are fat no i'm just saying there is a commonality in the very easy it's almost childlike the way you set up your enemy, especially because ultimately they have the big father figure of Jesus that's going to come back and fix everything, the strong man father figure. The enemy has to be strong and scary and can reach you wherever you are and is everywhere, but we are also the mighty and we will easily defeat them. Yes. Makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because he also, how he gets the GC off of their tail, he's just like, hey, you should come to my bakery and get some donuts. And it's the only establishment on Route 50 still standing. These dumb cops go and get some donuts and uh, get off uh, Zion's tail. Left behind almost did an A-cab. <laughs> A-cab, like donut. Love Jerry B. Jenkins. <laughs> almost. Almost. <laughs> We cut back to Ray, who is meeting Chaim Rosenzweig in person. They actually have, I think they've seen each other before on the plane specifically because Ray has been Nikolai's pilot for a good minute now. And Chaim, bless his heart, immediately blows the whole gig with Zion by basically saying, ah, Ray, my friend, how are you? How's your son-in-law? Good job with him rescuing Dr. Benjudo. Where are they now? In front of Leon Fortunato. Oh my God. Uh, I'm not sure if this is uh, or not, but do you notice how they described Rosenweig as elf-like? No, I didn't. Rosenweig was his usual enthusiastic self, an elf-like septuagenarian with broad features, a deeply lined face, and whiffs of curly white hair independent of his control. 
Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've already talked about how they kind of infantilize him. Yeah. And how that's a little, but yeah, they're, they're only continuing to do it. Cause they don't mean like Lord of the Rings elf. Yeah. They mean like Keebler. Yeah. Ugh. It's not great. And hang on. Cause Hyam becomes a cooler character. Yeah. I just, I'm going to keep saying that, but yeah, in the moment, their descriptions of certain people that aren't, you know, white people continuously like othering, I guess is a good way to say it. Cause I'm going to say something about Floyd later. Okay. They do this. I'm you can say I'm nitpicking, but it stuck out to me. Yeah. So Ray plays it cool, and we find out that Kaim didn't really blow the whole scam because the GC are aware, they know, and they've gone and told Hyam that, oh yeah, 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 Buck did rescue Zion and we helped him. And they're kind of flexing on Ray, like, hey, listen, Steel, we know, like, we know what your son-in-law's doing. We know you're a part of it. We just can't nail you with it yet. Yeah. Buck tries again to get a hold of Ken, but he is asleep in the hospital and unreachable. Buck and Zion finally notice their marks. Mm -hmm. Zion is able to lay it all out for Buck then because he has been anticipating this, that this is the seal described in Revelation chapter seven. So let's, uh, let's pull Revelation seven real quick. Okay, because it's the third verse of this. So I'll just start with Revelation seven, uh, verse one. After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then they go on to say 12,000 from the tribe of and then the 12 tribes. Now, I know what you guys are probably thinking because we've thrown these numbers around. We've talked about this before. Okay, if it's the 144,000 that are sealed and Zion is saying, yes, this is the seal from chapter seven. Why are all these Gentiles getting sealed? Why are Buck and the doctor and Ray and Mac? Why are all these guys ending up with the seal? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Yeah, short answer is they made it up. Yeah. <laughs> There's another thing that they made up. It's not in the Bible. The sealing in Revelation specifically refers to the 144,000. There may be some other verses that obliquely refer to something like this. They do later in this even section, when they're talking about the great multitude, they try to explain it like that, but it's still kind of uh, walking on thin ice as far as biblical justification. Yes, the great multitude in white robes, which Zion will talk about later, but no one in the multitude is mentioned as being sealed. So this is absolutely a Jenkins and LaHaye special. Mm -hmm. They have made this up for the book. So this whole idea is, uh, is not from scripture. And considering that, like we almost need like a phrase to go along with that. I'll think of something. Okay. It's not from scripture. It is not biblical. This is a device that they made up for the books. Yeah. The ceiling reference in chapter seven that Zion is referring to is the 144,000. So they're kind of, they're sneaking it in there on you. Like, yeah, you're not going to look that up. <laughs> we made it up. It's fine. Buck immediately realizes what the seal is and he calls the doctor back and the doctor introduces himself as Floyd Charles. They keep mentioning every time he comes up, they're like, oh, that black guy. Oh, yes, a black man. And that's what I'm saying about the othering language. And again, like I'm not nitpicking. It's there in the text constantly. Like they keep wanting to remind you that Dr. Charles is black. There's also a line that comes in a later book that is the worst. I think the worst line in the whole series. It is said to a black person. Oh, no. 
it's later and when it happens i'll tell you i think it's in like six or seven okay but it it's a while so they talk about the seal dr charles is overjoyed to hear what has happened he's right there with him he's like praise god that's fantastic and he tells buck that he and chloe have both been id'd and that they are in danger from the gc the gc's coming for chloe oh whoa we're gonna find out why later other than her connection to zion there is a specific reason they're coming to get her but buck's time is running out Buck and Zion, they recap about how they're still in disbelief that Amanda is working for Carpathia. And Ray calls, I believe, right? Yeah. Ray calls and tells Buck about Hyam. And Buck basically is like, I knew this would happen. I knew he would go to Nikolai. I knew he would get them involved because he truly believes. Like, Hyam is a true believer in the Global Community Project and in Nikolai. So I knew he was going to go against my advice. I knew he was going to try to get them involved. I kind of planned for this, but there's not really anything I can do. Mm -hmm. They also say that we have new believers here. Cool, we have some here. I'd sure like to meet them. And they're like, well, Buck, where you're going, you may not get a chance to meet them. And Buck says something kind of grim. He says, well, maybe not this side of heaven which is a very like today i go to valhalla like <laughs> line he's like yep might die today it's such a change from some of the hand wringing like sad like i may not make it through these seven years buck just flippantly is just like yep i might bite it but who cares that's because they're starting to become veterans at this whole rapture thing like yeah yeah we get it we don't have much time to live okay let's just keep on going on i'm kind of here for it yeah like they've just been through a worldwide earthquake people are dying everywhere in a war movie it's a trope called born again hard yeah and they're kind of getting born again hard now no pun intended to the christian thing <laughs> but like they're turning into soldiers and that's Still not a good thing, not really what we want. And by the end of this book, we're going to see some of the consequences of them kind of turning into soldiers. You know, whether the narrative thinks those are consequences or not, I think they are. But yeah, that line really stuck out to me. Yeah. It's a very Christian version of today's a good day to die. Yeah, exactly. So we get to Young Memorial Hospital and Buck gets on his Herb Cats disguise just so he can get in with a name that Ken would recognize yeah he goes by himself because he left zion back at the house because he doesn't want to put zion in danger and zion just goes beast mode on his posting game like he is updating the message board like crazy while buck is off on this adventure yeah he says his, his uh, identification was lost in his house in mount prospect uh, which is now earthquake residue so he doesn't have his fake id so he doesn't have to really prove that he is herb cats because the girl at the front wants to stop him. Yeah, it looks like he's not going to be able to get in. And then she goes and gets her supervisor from the back. And for some reason, the supervisor stops and looks at Buck and then just lets him on through. Do you think it might be because he he has the mark or? It is absolutely because he has the mark. Okay, gotcha. she has one too. This section is where I started to like zone out a little bit because this is where it started to slow down a little bit for me personally. So go ahead. We typically have more to talk about when they are just having exchanges and dialogue that get the worldview stuff across. Mm -hmm. But with these action scenes and these a lot of traveling and moving around, sometimes we have a little bit less to talk about other than saying like, and then this happens and then this happens. So we're going to get a little bit of and then this happens for a bit. I did think it was funny that they referenced Buck being a blonde like Nikolai <laughs> because the little girl at the front says well I guess my supervisor always had a thing for blondes <sighs> okay the Kirk Cameron portrayal in the Left Behind movies is not accurate 
they're not canonically accurate. Zero out of ten. I want only the most authentic left behind. They're not sticking to the canon. There's no truth in this art. <laughs> so we find Ken, poor guy, big, tall mountain of a man that he is. I got banged on the head by one of his planes. Now he says banged on the head. It shaved off part of his scalp that's just hanging there. Oh God. He's pretty banged up, man. Like, so basically he he was in the air. He tried to land the plane. And as he landed and tried to like engage his landing gear, like by getting out of the plane and like pushing it to a place where it can go, the earth gave way and the back of the wing clipped him on the top of the head. Oh, God. Poor guy. Yeah, dude, it sucks. He's in a lot of pain, but he looks up at Buck and is like, you got a job for me? Screw it. I'm getting out of here. And he, like, tries to leave. All of the the attendants and the nurses are like, wait, you can't leave. Like, you're not in any condition to leave. And he's like, I checked in. I'm checking out. This ain't prison. I love Ken, dude. (laughs) He's great. And so him and Buck kind of make their way out. The believer girl at the front covers for them, kind of steps in the way of the doctor and just lets them get out. And Ken says something kind of poignant. He's like, if the world just went through what was the wrath of the lamb, I'd better make friends with that lamb, huh? Yeah, yeah. So Ken is now on his own journey towards the faith. And they find out that Ken has another jet that he's going to fly Buck to Minneapolis because the road to Minneapolis is trashed. There's like no way to drive there. Like you can, but you're basically driving through newly created mountains. Mm -hmm. And that takes us into chapter 11. And we start out with some more iconic sad boy Rayford. He's just tearing himself apart. Like he, he knows Amanda's alive. And as for the betrayal, he just can't accept it with either head or heart. He's just torn. This guy is broken. He's been through so much and he's just trying to find some sense of normality but knowing that once he gets that normalcy again, it's it's not going to be fun. Yeah, and they actually, once again, it's like they're listening to our podcast. <laughs> Ray addresses the leading of the spirit thing mm-hmm. and how it sometimes is just a voice that you tell yourself. He said, not everything you feel deeply in your heart is God. Yeah. And again, like everything that I talk about here, it is mentioned, but there's never an answer given and they just kind of gloss over it. Well, not everything we feel deeply in our heart is God. Anyway, (laughs) and he says it because if he was wrong about Amanda, he doesn't want to hold the feeling against God. Yeah. Like he doesn't want to be angry at God because, oh God, you told me she was alive. Well, no, you just really wanted her to be. Rayford essentially sends the link to Mac about where on the internet to go to get Zion's teaching. So now Mac has access to the bulletin board and can get up to date on all of Zion's posts. Exactly. So they land in Dallas-Fort Worth. The airport is already basically rebuilt. And they get there just in time for Nikolai to make a massive TV address to the world regarding the rebuilding. Mm -hmm. After the rebuilding, again, because remember, the world got destroyed in a war and they were rebuilding and then earthquakes. So now they're rebuilding again. And the rebuilding of New Babylon as the capital city of the world and the new holy city as they will be moving the Enigma Babylon One World Faith to New Babylon. I love this. Carpathia played a virtual reality disc. (laughs) You know, like those virtual reality discs you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the kids have. (laughs) And they talk about how he's basically flying through like a city that looks like a futuristic heaven. I don't know if you've played Final Fantasy VII Remake. I have not. There is a scene later in the game where you do enter a virtual reality simulation of a planned future city and they sort of fly through it and it does look like kind of a futuristic heaven and it's called the promised land. Oh. Yeah, it looks exactly as described in here. It really reminds me of that a lot. Yeah, and even Mac 
talks about, man, it looks like with all these like gold spires everywhere, it looks like a, like old Sunday school pictures of heaven. And Rayford goes, Bruce and Zion say the Antichrist counterfeits what God does. I think we've seen that already. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he doesn't have any new material. He is kind of a ripoff artist. Right. I mean, I mean, every story has been told before, so. Yeah, nothing new under the sun, really. <laughs> Even if you created the sun. <laughs> so Nikolai kind of discounts the wrath of the lamb. He's like, come on, guys, common sense. Like he puts out the old line again. Do you really think that a loving God would snatch all these people away, cause all this chaos? And then come back a few years later to just rub salt in the wound by wrecking the world. Do you really think that's your loving God? Come on, which can't argue with it, right? Let us work together to make our world a global phoenix rising from the ashes of tragedy, become the greatest society ever known. And I've heard this global phoenix line be thrown out by some conspiracy theorists before as well. Yeah, anytime you get into, I would say, mythical or occult imagery, mm -hmm. when a world leader is making a speech, the conspiracy theorists are immediately like, wee woo, wee woo, wee woo. That's Illuminati. They're going to destroy the world. They're going to build the world from its ashes. But yeah, exactly. So they all kind of watch it, and Ray and Max sort of, they like applaud, but like they're like, yeah. And they notice one other kid in the group is also not like super enthusiastically applauding. And Max like, I'm gonna go talk to that kid. Right. Oh, and then Leon Fortunato comes on the air and he recounts his story of when he died in the earthquake and resurrection by Nikolai, espousing that Nikolai has a gift that will be used to the public in the future. And then he also says, I have not consulted his excellency on what I'm about to tell you. And I only hope he accepts it in the spirit, which I offer and is not embarrassed. And it's just like, hey, we're looking for Hattie Durham, which is our leader's fiance. And they have a child to be expected in the next few months. And we, we just really need Hattie to come back home. Yeah, he kind of doxes Hattie or he outs Hattie on live TV. Basically, is like an APB on this poor woman who is clearly trying to stay away from Nikolai. So I have a question for you, Gav. Yeah. Put yourself in the position of a citizen in this time. You've been through the rapture. You've been through the earthquake. You've survived all this. You've seen the war. You've seen the devastation. You've seen the witnesses on TV. And now the literal king of the world and his number one toady are showing you crazy future city on TV. And now he's telling you, oh, by the way, he raised me from the dead on live TV. Where's your head at? I don't know. Like, I would probably, like, at this point, I'd be like, all right, something's up. Either the new king of the world is doing some charlatan stuff and trying to get us to believe he's more powerful he is, or we're in, like, mythic, mystical times now. I don't know where I'd be. I, I would be very shocked and confused given everything else that has happened. Th this would be making me trust and be gung-ho for Nikolai even more or be further fueling any like doubt uh, I have towards him. I'm not sure which one I would go down. but it So let, let's put a pin in that because I'm going to ask you again after a later section okay. where we kind of get to hear the counter narrative. Okay. I want to point out, though, it's pretty appropriate considering the subtitle of the book is The World Takes Sides. Yeah, yeah. 
the narrative is basically telling us it is not really possible to be neutral for much longer. Mm -hmm. Whether that's a good message to be sending out to people, probably not. But that's kind of the stakes now is that it is slowly but surely becoming less and less viable to stay neutral in all of this. I mean, that might also kind of come from Tim LaHaye's time in World War II, because if you were neutral in Germany, you were kind of just helping out the Nazis. So that that's kind of maybe a little bit of where Tim LaHaye's pulling a little bit of inspiration from as well. I'd say probably, yeah. yeah. Mac returns and says, oh, I've talked to the kid. He's super cool. His name is David Hasid. He's one of the 144,000. Huh. He's here with us. He's an IT guy. And we talk about something that I heard in Sunday school all the time, specifically how David came to Christ is through something called the Romans Road or the Romans Road to Salvation. Are you familiar with that? I Romans remember Road? that as well. I don't remember specifics, but I remember that was a thing. So it was often used as a witnessing tool. It was a series of verses that they took you through in Romans that basically laid out like point by point by point, the need for salvation, the plan, and then the promise. So I actually have it pulled up here. So the Romans Road to Salvation. So you got Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, meaning that there's nobody that's righteous. We're all sinners. We all need Christ. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, we've all sinned, and the result and the consequence of that sin, regardless of how small, is death. Mm -hmm. And then Romans 5.8, so we're going backwards a little bit, but God is commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Illustrating that God sent his son into the world to save the world out of love for us. So we have the sacrifice and the means to salvation. And then the actual plan itself, the process, which is Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then finally, we have the assurance and the promise of salvation in Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeah, and I, I remember a lot of these highlights. While I don't remember specifically going through the Romans Road, a lot of these verses were like major parts of Baptist theology. And when you were talking to someone who maybe had no biblical knowledge, no biblical background, didn't grow up in church, you would basically just lay out those five or six verses and be like, here it is. You need salvation because you're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, the wages of sin is death. You know, you deserve to die because you're a sinner. God loves you. So he gave you a way out. Here's how we get it. Here's the prayer. And we promise if you do this, you will be saved. Uh, okay. And so the whole ABC song of the Baptist church I went to kind of is a more condensed version of this. Like A, admit to God you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus is God's son. C, confess your faith in Jesus. That's like the three-step program I guess they got from the Romans road. Yeah, exactly. It is the most bare bones witnessing process that you can take someone through mm -hmm. when you were explaining Christianity to them. You could take all of the other stuff that we go over in the Bible and cut that out and leave just that and you're good. And it all kind of happens in the same section of one book of Paul's letter to the Romans. I was reading that in King James, if you didn't tell by the these and thous and haths and stuff like that. <laughs> 
We learn about that, and then we cut back to Buck and Ken. They are having a tough old time getting a place to take off with that Learjet. They actually have to taxi it by hand, trying to move it and guide it as it's moving very slowly to a golf course. And Buck has to take over for most of it because Ken's injuries are kind of getting to him. Yeah. Back to Carpathia. He's asking Ray to go after Hattie. He's like, I know we talked about this before, Captain Steele, but I really need you to talk to Miss Durham and I really need to know where she is because I'm pretty sure you know. He sort of steps to Ray and says, is it time for the gloves to come off, Captain Steele? They have a little back and forth about Hattie and the plan for the baby and Ray gets real extra by saying, oh, just so I'm clear, you're going to pay to murder the child then? Come on. Right. Then he goes, what if she chooses to to bear the child? And Carpathia is just like, well, I must end the relationship, but it won't go over well if there's a child. Yeah, it would be really inconvenient for me if there was a child. In fact, it would have been really convenient if she just were to have died in the earthquake. So even if you can confirm that for me, I will be in your debt. Ugh. He does let it slip that he thinks Ray is responsible for harboring Zion and that that is basically the only thing keeping Ray out of prison. Yeah. That's the one bit of leverage that Ray seems to have over Nikolai is that he knows where Zion is. Technically, he doesn't, but... Nikolai thinks he does. Yeah, they're using the thing where like what they were talking about Loretta a few books back where they keep information from each other so that under duress, they can't get that extracted from them. So back to Ken and Buck, they are finally able to take off from the golf course and Zion calls Buck while they're in the plane. <laughs> is very excited, talks to him about the coming soul harvest. So we talked about the taking sides and how it's impossible to remain neutral. We're going to get some numbers on what Zion thinks the coming soul harvest is a little later. Zion also believes full well that God will protect him from the forces of evil, from the GC. Now, there's not really anything in the Bible that says that. It's not like the witnesses where they will not be harmed until the due time or anything like that. There is not a Zion figure outlined in Revelation, but Zion just believes that this is the case. So after they land, they need to find a car to be able to get to the hospital of where they're going. They only have really, really small cars, like subcompacts. Ken's a big guy. Ritz Steven says, there's barely room in there for me, let alone my son here. Yeah, they're traveling as father and son so that they can put everything on Ken's cards. Just smart. It even says Ritz looked at Buck and Buck knew what he was thinking. The two of them were going to get to know each other better than they had cared to in that car. Adding a grown <laughs> woman in fragile condition took more imagination than Buck possessed. Yeah. So they get a little foreshadowing of what kind of guy Ken is because Ken Ritz is a violent man. Really? Okay. Yeah. And I'm not going to spoil anything for later books, but he has a temper on him because Ken tries to lay down in the back and Buck tries to like grab a bag or something and scrapes it across Ken's open head wound. Oh, God. And Ken is in horrific pain, and he turns to Buck and says, if I thought you did that on purpose, I'd kill you. Holy shit. Yeah, so, yeah, Ken's got a temper on him, man. Like, he's a loose cannon, this Ken Ritz guy, so we're going to find more of that as we go forward. But that brings us into Chapter 12. Rayford is feeling a little bit down because he hasn't been able to spend the time that he wanted to in the Bible because he remembers how Bruce Barnes says that it was important to search the scriptures daily, and he had started making a point to read it right before he went to bed to be able to do his duty towards the Lord. He actually lost his Bible 
stable in the earthquake. So now in like really early in the morning, he's like going on the internet trying to download a Bible and see if Zion posted anything. And he was kind of like kicking himself because he wished he just kept his Bible in his laptop bag as well. That's surprisingly modern. He's downloading a Bible, which is, I think, the way a lot of people probably read the Bible now. Yeah, I've talked to some people that their main way of consuming the Bible is via like the Bible iPhone app. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. I used to have that app. Yeah. Pretty, pretty modern thing. And Ray reminds me of my dad in this because, man, every morning when I'd wake up to go to school, if I woke up a little early, I'd come downstairs and my dad would have his Bible out and he'd be doing his, his individual devotional Bible study, you know, taking 30 minutes, just reading some verses, having a prayer or two. Really reminded me of my dad. That made me feel good. Mm-hmm. Nice. So he meets up with David and they kind of get to know each other. David looks at Zion as his spiritual father, like a lot of the 144,000 do. And he kind of gives Ray a little primer on OPSEC around the GC buildings, basically like, hey, you have a phone jack in your room. Mm-hmm. Here's where you can go. Here's where you can't go. Here's how you jack in so you don't have to do this out here. And he's really being a good assistant here. And I think David sticks around for a while as a good Mac and Ray ally. He's an interesting character because we get a little bit of his backstory and he was a 22-year-old college graduate who had aspired for military service in Poland. And instead of working in military service for Poland, he had gotten into service in global community because of his how enamored he was through Carpathia. But he went online and found Zion's internet postings and that's how he got involved in the tribulation force. Exactly. And he sees himself is enlisted behind enemy lines. So there's more of that soldier rhetoric in there. Mm -hmm. So we're back to Ken and Buck. They finally make it to the hospital and Ken starts to pass out. And he goes, remember when you got me my medicine? I popped him in my mouth without water, right? I I was supposed to take one from one bottle and three from the other every four hours. I missed my last dose, so I took two of one and six of the other. It turns out that one was just for local pain. I'm guessing it was like some kind of like ibuprofen or something like that. And then the other was a combination of morphine, Demirol, and Prozac, the one that he took six of. So dude's high as a kite. And he's a big fella. So, you know, I think he's probably pushing through, but I had to look up. I didn't know you could take morphine orally. I had to look that up. Really? Okay. Yeah, you can. It's not just intravenous. So Buck basically has to drag him into the hospital and he wakes him up by pressing down on his open head wound. And I just wrote, what the fuck? Oh my God. Yeah. Ah. So Buck goes into the bathroom when they get into the hospital. He leaves Ken in the waiting room, makes himself a doctor disguise by basically poking the lenses out of his sunglasses, putting his badge on, his GC badge, and just acting egotistical. He looks in the mirror and goes, you are a doctor, a no-nonsense, big ego, all-action doctor. And I got to tell you, good portion of my career I spent working exclusively with doctors. And there's some truth to that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he kind of big dogs one of the residents to get him some scrubs and a stethoscope and Chloe's chart. He just finds a random resident intern probably with dark circles under his eyes, hasn't slept in 48 hours. He's like, hey, you, I told you to get me this chart and a stethoscope and this other stuff and you didn't get it. Where you been? This poor kid. <laughs> Like residents are already going through enough. Stop it. But he does. And Buck is able to disguise himself, get through. He finally finds Chloe's room. Chloe's in bad shape. She's in really, really bad shape. Almost unrecognizable. A few of the highlights of what she's like. uh, Oh, yeah. I'm going to put a content warning in here. 
the description of Chloe's injuries is pretty graphic. So if you don't want to hear that, go ahead and skip ahead about two and a half minutes. The right side of her body had been slammed full force by a section of roofing. Her normally smooth, pale skin was now blotched red and yellow and invaded by pitch, tar, and bits of shingling. Her right foot looks like someone had tried to fold it. A bone was protruding from her shin. Her right hip had been knocked out of joint. Bruises and bumps in her midsection. Elbow dislocation with her shoulder. Horrible. Like, yeah, and a damage to her jaw, teeth, cheekbone, and eye. It's kind of surprising that her baby is still doing good in there. But lo and behold, there's a fetal heartbeat detected in there. So Buck is just hoping that she's all right and that the baby's all right as well. They go on for like a page and a half just talking like how beat up Chloe is. Yeah, he literally calls her a monster. That's one of the parts I went like, ugh. Oh, it's gross, man. Like, because he's like, oh, man, my 22-year-old wife used to be so hot. Now she's hideous. I can't even look at her. Yeah, it's real bad, man. Like, and I understand what they're trying to get across, but just the perspective and the voice from which it's written is just kind of icky. Yeah. So he realizes that Chloe is in a double room and that the other woman in the room, Ms. Ashton, has died. And then we cut back to Ray. <laughs> As David Hasid had said, thousands upon thousands had already responded. Many put messages on the bulletin board identifying themselves as members of the 144. They keep on talking about the coming soul harvest that's in Zion's messages. Zion reiterates some of his backstory that he was commissioned by the state of Israel to study claims of the coming Messiah, and it recaps that a little bit. And then we start getting into more bits of revelation that's being- Yeah, more judgments. Mm -hmm. Because we're now in the second 21-month period. So if you're dividing the tribulation up, because they do it a few different ways, but in this one, they're doing it in quarters. So it's like 21-month quarters. We're entering into quarter number two. It's not halftime yet. So new judgments are coming. Do we want to recap anything from Revelation chapters eight and nine yet? Let's do it. I will go ahead and just go through because uh, chapter eight's pretty short. So I'll just go through it. And you yeah, take out. us all the way through woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Okay. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water. 
because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to all those who dwell on the earth. And the blasts of the other trumpets that were the three angels were about to blow. That's pretty metal. <laughs> but the part that I find most interesting is the star named Wormwood, which I'm pretty excited for when that gets unveiled in this. Oh, it's coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah, things are about to get real bad. And this, I think they say, is one of Zion's top posts he's ever made. Because later on, we're going to see Ray watching the hit counter. If he doesn't know what a hit counter is on a website, ask your parents. And it's just going up and up and up and up and the comments are going nuts. And science has a few things here. He says, look, these are all coming. Things are going to get worse, but the outcome has already been determined. We win. So the best thing we can do is to bring as many people onto our already winning side as possible, which to me is the best argument for what the characters should be doing that the books have made thus far. He does talk about the great persecution, the fact that the world truly is taking sides. So if you decide to be a servant of Christ, you are going to be targeted. And then he goes in to talk about the great multitude, which no one could number of all tribes, tongues, and peoples. A bit of inclusivity that we're not used to seeing here. You know, we have a kind of an intersectional Christianity doctrine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In America, a lot of our right-wing Christianity that we see tends to be very exclusive mm -hmm. along certain ethnic and geographical and socioeconomic lines, which I think is utterly discounting a very rich tapestry of forms of Christianity that have existed since the founding of the country um, that are outside of those evangelical bubbles you know you want to know something interact because uh, i've stayed on the show before that like one of my pet hobbies is following like various christian facebook groups and just seeing all the beef that goes down yeah they actually saw something kind of wholesome where like some i think it was like some catholic posted a post like saying hey i know we're like hating on each other all the time so let's just start like a post of like why we all like each other and for the first time i saw catholics protestants eastern orthodox folks all being like oh man all of you are so cool this is why we actually kind of all like each other and like patting each other all on the back to use a phrase you used earlier it was kind of adorable because i just saw eastern orthodox going like man i love protestant zeal and Protestants like man i love how organized you are it was an ecumenical coming together that i don't think i have seen ever in my in my time on this earth that is precious you know maybe maybe gav maybe we don't need to leave this old world behind just yet huh right maybe there's hope there is hope <laughs> The big takeaway that I got from this, because he talks about the soul harvest being upwards of 1 billion. Now he's estimating that actually based on some numbers that the Bible gives of a multitude of 200 million. Mm -hmm. so he goes, okay, they can count to 200 million, but if there's a multitude of souls that cannot be numbered, 
we're just going to say a billion, which that's a lot of people. Yeah. That is a whole lot of people considering the remaining population of the earth after all of the judgments. So it's a big deal. Yeah. But the thing that I took away from this was because you've had Nikolai and Leon on global television reaching everyone versus one guy in a fallout shelter reaching even more people through the internet. Mm -hmm. Internet beats TV. New media beats old media. They were on this back in the 90s. And it kind of predicts, like we said with Buck and his Truth magazine, Infowars, Breitbart, PragerU, Blaze, all of these right-wing new media outlets, OAN is another one, right-wing new media outlets where people can go directly and get exactly the narrative that they want. And the right-wingers figured this out. And it's kind of scary because it's still that. Have you seen the meme of like, you can go to Fox News for free, you can go to Breitbart for free, but to read the New York Times, you got to pay? Yeah, I've seen stuff like that. And they wonder why they're losing that fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think that Jenkins and LaHaye were able to conceptualize that in total, but that's basically what they're predicting. Yeah. Really interesting. We cut back to Buck as the chapter ends and he kind of, I keep saying bug big dogs people. You know what I mean by that, right? Uh, No, like explain it. The, if, uh... So basically he just blusters at people. Like he acts like he's supposed to be there. He talks very fast, towers over people a little bit and just sort of out confidences them. He does an intimidation check and he rolls really well. Okay. So when I say Buck is big dogging somebody, he's just trying to kind of domineer over them with his presence mm-hmm. and his just raw charisma and confidence. And he, to get past the GC guards that are now stationed outside of Chloe's room. He says, I'm not just a doctor. I'm also an egomaniac. I'm not just a doctor. I'm also an egomaniac. And I'm like, true, buddy. I feel that. And when he gets in the room, he takes Chloe by the hand and she's not conscious, but then she grips his hand back. So Chloe is alive. She made it. Then Buck has a moment of brilliance, realizes that, okay, the other woman in the room is dead. They're going to have to take her down to the morgue. The GC is coming for Chloe. Split second, he runs out. Without anyone noticing, he swaps the nameplates on the door so that bed A is now Mother Doe and bed B is the dead Miss Ashton. Gotcha. So he buys himself a little bit more time. Yep. It's pretty brilliant. Yeah. And then we move into chapter 13. Buck is slipping back into Chloe's room. She's not too responsive yet. So he's just trying to get some kind of communication. She finally starts to answer back. As he prays, he's praying desperately. And then she- And she's really out of it because she's heavily medicated. And the first thing that she says is, I got you those. And he's like, what? He's like, I got you those. And you broke them. He finds out she's talking about his glasses that he broke. Adorable. She says, you should take better care of gifts, Dr. Buck. He gets through to her that her name uh, that she needs to begin going by as an alias is Annie Ashton. She's just like, okay, okay, I got this. Yeah, if anybody asks, you're Annie Ashton. And so he runs back to the hall, gets Ken, puts him in a wheelchair. And as he's going, he runs into another doctor who is talking to some of the GC goons. He rolls his charisma check again and is like, oh, doctor, and reads the guy's name tag. And is like, oh, I saw you at the the thing. And uh, how's your son? And all the like, he just bluffs his way flawlessly through this interaction and then happens to ask the doctor for a prescription to help out Ken. And so the doctor gives him a prescription for Benzedrine. He's like, oh, yeah, an injection of Benzedrine will set him right because everything's chaos. Doctors are being brought in from all over the place. He doesn't know Buck. He's like, oh, he just assumes he's a doctor. So his bluff works. 
He gives Ken the injection, gets him a pair of scrubs, and Ken starts to kind of come back out of it and is able to help Buck with his ruse. Working like lightning, Buck puts the dead Miss Ashton on a gurney and starts wheeling it down to the morgue. He goes right into an elevator full of GC goons. Oh, no. Acts like he's supposed to be there. Not a care in the world. Even has a run-in with the doctor who's like, we do not transport corpses on these public elevators. Where are you from? And he's like, oh, sorry, first time in the hospital. Bluffs again, gets away with it. Another thing I want to touch on real quick. He actually uses his legal name when he gives the doctor a name because he calls himself Dr. Cameron. Oh, yeah, he does. So he's starting to use Cameron again a little bit more. Gavin, I just realized. What? Cameron Williams portrayed on screen by star of small screen, Kirk Cameron. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Bro, we got to watch that movie. Uh, we got to watch it soon. got to do it soon. Yes, you're right. He gives the name Dr. Cameron. He's starting to run out of juice in his charisma tank, but he makes it down there. He drops the body off and he gets upstairs just in time to see a tiff breaking out between the GC goons and Ken, who is also now posing as a doctor, fully awake after his Benzedrine shot. And Ken, again, being a big guy, is towering over these GC goons and being like, look, this is my patient. I don't know why you're here. You need to get out of this room unless you want typhoid fever (laughs) like everybody's so flustered that they just sort of buy it and then they leave and they're like yeah but we're coming back so you don't move stay right here and so buck's charisma is apparently contagious because ken's able to bluff his way through that at least temporarily he uses a bit of uh journalism bardic inspiration here Exactly. They're trying to get Chloe out. They get her in the wheelchair. They're about to get her out of the hospital and they round the corner straight into the GC goons who have now been stopped by another doctor who happens to be Dr. Charles. Ah. It's almost a miracle Mm -hmm. that Dr. Charles, who knows Buck and is also a believer, looks at Chloe and goes, oh yeah, I worked with her back in Kenosha. She's not the one you're looking for. And is able to, again, succeed on a bluff and get Ken, Chloe, and Buck safely out of the hospital. We haven't touched on this yet, but Chloe this entire time in her out-of-it state is calling Ken Dr. Airplane. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she is. Which is like, oh, she's out of it. And he gives like a fake name that kind of sounds like Airplane. And the GC goons are not having it. They're like going to go talk to the hospital administrator or like the lead physician. And while they're busy, the three of them slip away. Mm Mm-hmm. Everybody escapes, no casualties, mission success. They all are able to get safely back to Chicago and to the safe house before the GC is any the wiser, because I'm sure they weren't expecting them to take a Learjet back to Chicago. Right. And Ken has a moment with Buck, just kind of says, hey, lay this out for me. What's the deal with this Christianity salvation thing? He actually asks, he's like, look, man, I just need pros and cons, black and white. Just give me the short version. And he says, read John and then read Romans. Mm. Just like we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. And he levels with him. He's like, look, you're either serving God or you're serving the Antichrist. There is no in-between. So again, world's taking sides. It's one or the other. Everything is becoming binary. Simple way to look at the world. I don't think it's a healthy one, but that's the story we're reading here. Yep. Chloe is starting to come out of her medicated haze. We're getting old Chloe back. She's like, look, I got to rest up. I got to heal, but you're not going to stop me from helping Zion and doing what I originally set out to do. So Chloe's back. 
So we cut back to Ray. Oh, and we're in chapter 14 now. I believe. Oh, crap. I forgot. Yep. Yeah, we're we're in chapter good. 14. Chapter 14 is where we're going to leave off today. One of the last bits of that vignette is they see a message from Hattie Durham that was several days old on the screen. And that's when we cut back to Ray. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So Hattie had emailed Chloe. So we're about to find out what that message was. Yep. But yes, we cut back to Ray and they're eavesdropping on Leon and Pontifex Maximus Peter Matthews during the flight. Fortunato and Pontifex Matthews do not get along at no. All. It describes them like they are oil and water to one another. And Matthews is used to be treated like royalty and Fortunato is just kind of not doing that because the only one that he wants to look up to uh, on chain of command is Carpathia. And that's really rubbing Pontifex Matthews the wrong way. And they get in a contest with each other. It's mainly just about titles, kind of similar as we saw in the last episode with Ray getting like really frustrated on titles. Pontifex Maximus is having the same kind of thing. He doesn't agree with Carpathia being called his excellency. He's really miffed about the title of Supreme Commander being reserved for Fortunato. His excellency specifically, he's fed up about that because that's a sacred title and not a royal one, which is kind of getting getting under his skin. Apparently potentate is a royal title of some kind. I'm not an expert on titles. I'm not an expert on anything, but specifically says he's upgrading from a royal title to a sacred one, which I think confirms what we were saying last week about excellency. Mm -hmm. Matthews and Leon are trying to sort of out-power game each other, and they're not doing a very good job in it. It's really hard to read. Like, it's just really two pathetic guys just trying to just wave their influence in each other's faces, and it's just so bad. Utterly unlikable characters. So we find out that the email that Hattie sent to Chloe is kind of in code. She's not using any real names, just initials. Her family is not in Denver. A reproductive clinic she wanted to go to is in Denver. Now, she has not had an abortion. She is still pregnant. She is under care. She is growing attached to the child and is having second thoughts about an abortion. And she just wants to hear from somebody. She just wants to talk to somebody. She can't talk to Nikolai, so she tries to talk to Chloe. Mm-hmm. So the next mission is very likely going to be, let's go get Hattie. Yep. So Ray checks the boards again, and the pressure is actually mounting from the public to do something for Zion. Like, hey, Supreme Potentate, you have all this influence. Please help this man. We believe in him, and we know that you're a good man, because not everybody who's a new believer really understands what Nikolai is, and they're pleading for him to please help. Zion. Mm -hmm. So this is more leverage because the public, at least the Christian public, is totally on Zion's side. And if Nikolai doesn't help him, Nikolai's going to look bad. Yeah. So that's some more leverage that they have to get Zion to his ultimate goal, which is to go to Israel to train the 144,000. We have more back and forth between Leon and Matthews. Uh, Matthews specifically hits on that he's going to change his title to Peter II. Which is more popish. Yeah, I'm guessing that uh, he's considering himself the successor to Peter, as in the rock from the Bible. That's not a bad observation. I like that. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's been like another Peter Pope and he's just banking off that. 
but I guess technically there wasn't because I think Catholics don't they consider Peter the first pope? Yeah, 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 they do. I didn't even catch that. Good eye, dude. And Matthews is going to try to compete with Zion because he is really worried about the following that Zion is starting to cultivate and he's going to do it with GC money. However, he is not negotiating from a position of strength with Leon and Leon knows it. Matthews needs the GC and the GC's resources. He doesn't really need Matthews, especially now that they are starting to pivot toward looking at Nikolai as divine. Gotcha. No more one world faith. We're going to start putting our faith in the big man. So Leon tells Matthews about the resurrection. And then we cut later to the final bit of the chapter. Leon calls Ray to the back of the plane and they're going to have a little heart to heart cards on the table talk. Yeah. Pretty much the gist of what happens here is just like, hey, uh, we, we have a favor to ask of you and we want you to deliver zion ben judah to israel he's kind of taken aback by this and he's like okay so you're asking me for my price now rather than being required to trade my own daughter for zion leon just goes oh yeah you have his excellency's personal word that he intended that the wife of one of his employees to be reunited with her husband and given the best care and he's just We weren't trying to kidnap your daughter as a bargaining chip. We were just trying to make sure she got back to her husband. Leon's not as good at this as Nikolai is. Charisma stat isn't as high as Carpathia's. Yeah. So he's continuing to bluff that the GC helped Ben Judah. And Ray knows he can't say too much because then it would give away that he's been eavesdropping. And but cards on the table. He says, look, you're going to bring Ben Judah to us so that we can get him to Israel because that's in our best interest. Maybe not long term, but definitely short term. Also, you're going to do one more thing for us. We are not asking any longer. You are going to bring us Miss Durham because she is too much of a liability and she could say something that could embarrass the potentate. You're going to go get her. Mm hmm. He goes out and talks to Mac McCollum and Mac was listening the entire time on the bugging device. And he goes, what's your price going to be, Ray? And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, Benjuda belongs in Israel and Carpathia has to ensure his safety, doesn't he? He's like, yeah, so what's your price, man? He goes, maybe if I can string this out long enough, I can learn something from Fortunato about Amanda. I'm telling you, Mac, she's alive somewhere. She's alive, Ray. Why no contact? I don't want to offend you. Is it possible she says what they say she is? And that rounds us off of chapter 14, Soul Harvest. And I just want to leave us with Leon's final words about Hattie, where he says, accidents happen. Miss Durham can't be invisible long if she says something to embarrass the potentate. So basically saying, look, we know you know where this girl is or we know you know how to get to her. Either you go get her or we're going to kill her. Oh, so good place to leave off as we go into the final part of Soul Harvest. Right. It dragged it a few parts, but that, that was a decent section. It had, a, it had a good amount of good stuff in there. Yeah, and I think I think it's a good second third. Like it leads off here to us getting a pretty good climax here at the end, or at least a fun one. So I think that's going to about cover it for us for section two of Soul Harvest. Uh, how you feeling, Gav? I'm feeling decently okay. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, it was it was kind of fillerish at parts, but it did have kind of my favorite plot point the entire thing. So I'm uh, I'm excited to round this book out because this last third gets insane at parts. <laughs> yeah make sure you guys come back next week for that one but that's going to do it for us here uh thanks for listening to this episode of i survived the rapture i'm shane bazell and i'm gavin russell 
Yeah, always take medication as prescribed by your doctor. Always be safe when taking medication. Yeah, seriously. No jokes here. Bye. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. You